Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. We're the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs and today we are broadcasting from my hometown of Los Angeles and we've got a few sprinkles of rain out there which is hardly enough to wet the ground, I'm not going to do much about the drought. Now this program is all about helping entrepreneurs and in fact everybody in business to be more successful. We've been bringing you information, great advice and fantastic interviews now for four years and we hope that that's helped helping to maximize your own success. I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs and the majority of them are worried about how to get their burn rates down. You hear it all the time. When I ask them why they're worried about burn rates, they tell me it's a result of pressure from investors. Now, Founders Fund, the Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm which invests in companies like Airbnb, Lyft, Spotify, Stripe, SpaceX, and was one of the original investors in Facebook, says burn rates don't matter. And when you think about it, you've got to agree with them. Only by valuating a company's use of cash and long-term strategy can high burn rates be diagnosed as either good or bad. In many cases, low burn is actually very dangerous because it means that when it comes to speed of execution, you're probably doing it slowly and faster. In today's digital marketplace, is always better. And doomed companies are those with very moderate burn. It means they're slow and they're not efficient. So they're the worst of both worlds. Now, if... If burn rate truly mattered, we would conclude that companies that are fast and inefficient are also in bad shape. But while we're not suggesting you should be inefficient, these companies are at least executing quickly. So we actually need a higher burn rate today for a better tomorrow. In fact, not only is the conventional burn rate wisdom wrong, it's also misleading. For companies with a great business and a path to profitability, striving to increase burn rate, i.e. spend more money faster so that you can reach your milestones quicker, is usually the best way to go. So as long as we're striving to build a better future that is not yet obvious, we need to avoid rhetoric and instead be diligent in our thinking, not, not by just considering the financial environment, but also by looking beyond the surface of each company and acknowledging that ba- burn is not bad. So next time your investor tells you to cut your burn rate, tell them to bugger off, mind their own business. Let you do what you do best and you'll deliver them the return they need. And we we talk constantly about legacy companies and the contrast with e-commerce companies and how they do business. Well, this should make you feel old. Microsoft celebrated its 40th birthday just three days ago. 
Microsoft was born in the year that Captain and Tennille topped the American charts with Love. Love will keep us together. Remember that? That was a great song. I loved that song. And by its 20th birthday, it had passed IBM. And uh, only the slow in its 30s and be overtaken by Apple. And Apple, incidentally, is only one year younger than Microsoft. So Apple's 39. So to reinvigorate Microsoft is to move as quickly and as far as possible away from being a Windows-only company to being a global network of giant data centres that provide a broad range of online services for companies and individuals. That's where they've got to go and fast. Now, Microsoft's transition is being watched by everybody. Cisco, EMC, Hewlett-Packard, Oracle, IBM, SAP, they've all got to navigate the shift from a world where we had computers on people's desks to a situation where everything resides in the cloud and in people's hands in the form of mobile devices. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google and all the others, they're constantly on guard for the emergence of a new technology platform that allows businesses to build applications that lure away their customers. That's why the 11-year-old Facebook recently spent $22 billion, with a B, on WhatsApp, a messaging service, and $2 billion on Oculus, which makes... Um, virtual reality headsets. Today, it's not a matter of keeping up or you'll fall behind. It's a matter about keeping up or you will disappear. It's about staying nimble as technology changes just continue to accelerate. Now, if you're like, if, if you're like most startup companies that are doing something new and um, are launching out with something disruptive you probably at some time or another will get a cease and desist letter from a, for a patent infringement. I've had a few of them in my time. And as soon as you get one, you, you immediately go, ah, straight into panic mode. Now, sometimes these come from competitors. Some of the times they come from people outside your industries. Sometimes they just come from uh, patent trolls, you know, companies that buy up in an intellectual property and then try to assert it against unsuspecting businesses. So I've had a few emails from people saying, what should you do if your business has received a cease and desist letter? So here are my recommendations. Firstly, you've got to hire an experienced intellectual property attorney. An experienced IPRI attorney can help you determine whether the claims have any merit and advise you on your next steps. Secondly, do not ignore the cease and desist letter. Ignoring it will not make it go away. And in fact, it just might do the opposite. So once you've received the letter, you have effectively been served. And uh, it's one thing to be unaware that you're infringing, but it's another thing entirely to be a deliberate infringer. So you need to get your attorney to craft the best response. Thirdly, Consider what the sending sender is claiming. Determine whether the assertions have any merit. Most cease and desist letters are generic and, uh, you know, your attorney can help you determine the merits of these claims, send back a letter and perhaps it goes away. But you do need to employ an experienced intellectual property attorney. This quite surprised me, but the starting... 
pay for a Stanford graduate with a computer science degree is between 90000 and 140000 well above the 52000 that's the median household income in the US. So nearly triple for first-year Stanford grad. And uh, the money can get much bigger. Big, the big publicly traded companies like Facebook and Google and LinkedIn regularly pay new hires out of Stanford a salary of around 150000 And usually that comes with stock grants worth a minimum of 100000 And then there can be sign-on bonuses that can be up to 150000 And less established tech companies often offer Stanford recruits more than that. So the numbers for a first-year grad from Stanford can hit 500000 or more. And this time a year ago, Snapchat was offering Stanford grads hundred to 150000 in salary and 400000 in stock grants vested over four years. And because stock in tech companies can sometimes appreciate very quickly, particularly these days, um, Stanford students can be millionaires at a very young age. In 2013, Snapchat was a $3 billion company. A year and a half later, it's a $15 billion company. And many Stanford students don't have to wait until after college for the big money to start coming in. In Silicon Valley, most of the established, established tech companies and many fast-growing startups host student interns every summer and pay them between $4,500 and $7,000 a month as a, an intern. So why does the industry work so hard to get Stanford re, re, um, graduates? What's, what's so special about Stanford? Well, Stanford is more appealing to tech companies because it's right in the middle of the Silicon Valley. And um, they look to the university just down the street. It's blocks from where Google CEO Larry Page lives and where Steve Jobs died, and uh, Yahoo, Google, and Facebook grew up in Palo Alto, and billionaires just walk to the campus, give lectures, and stroll back home again. And some Stanford residents, uh, students, they forego those big salaries they could earn in entry-level jobs and start companies of their own. And a lot of them are now billionaires. Larry Page, Sergey Brin, they made Google. Jerry Yang and David Philo created Yahoo. Reid Hoffman uh, created LinkedIn. Evan Spiegel and two of his Stanford University frat brothers created Snapchat. So imagine being a 21-year-old computer science student at Stanford surrounded by all the success and money, knowing that if you work hard and don't screw up, a good amount of that money could be heading right your way. Be nice, wouldn't it? What a great position to be in that would be. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show from Los Angeles on Voice America Business. We're here to assist entrepreneurs to become successful. So if you have a question about any aspect of business, please don't hesitate to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com and we'll answer it on air 
or email you directly. Make sure you subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which is being sent out to over 16,000 business executives in over 60 countries, and it should go out this next week. So um, we got a great response to the March newsletter, so um, make sure you get April's. I'll be back right after this break with my uh, guest, Bob Pierce, who co-founded Brit Week while serving as British Consul General in Los Angeles from 2005 till 2009. He was involved, he was a key negotiator in the Hong Kong handover to China, and he played a key role in the Northern Ireland peace process, which formed the basis of reforming policies in uh, Northern Ireland. And Brit Week's a great way to promote the ties between Britain and California. He's a super guy. In fact, he invited me to the Brit Week launch where they're giving awards to all of the tech companies. So I'm looking forward to that. And I'll be back with Bob after this short break. And as soon as I come back after speaking with Bob, we're going to do a segment about CQS International, which is a an extremely innovative an extraordinary company, and I must admit I'm involved, but it really has a great story to tell, and I'll be back with that story after I speak to Bob Pierce. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Business Radio Show. This is um, the segment of the show where we give you an insight into the lives of extraordinary and very interesting people. And we try to find out what makes them tick. Most people that I know that do things differently and do amazing things began life in average, ordinary circumstances, just like the most of us. Most of us start off pretty much the same. What makes that person achieve so much when a great many of us don't? So this is the segment where we try to find out. Now, Bob Pierce co-founded Brit Week while serving as British Consul General in Los Angeles from 2005 till 2009. He retired from government work in 2009 after 32 years as a diplomat. Wow. 
and he now works with a number of startup companies in Los Angeles and elsewhere and sits on the non-profit boards including Education Development Centre and the Churchill Centre. He's had an incredible career, this guy. His diplomatic posts included China and Hong Kong. He was a key negotiator in the talks leading to Hong Kong's handover to China. He played a key role in the Northern Ireland peace process and drafted the 1999 report, which formed the basis of policing reforms in Northern Ireland. Now, that's really quite remarkable. But uh, there's a lot of remarkable things in this guy's history, so let's just have a talk to him. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. It's very good to be with you. Thank you. Um, a career diplomat for 32 years, and now we all know what a diplomat does. They go to cocktail parties, they schmooze, you know, most of them are grey-haired, they wear grey suits, you always think of them having grey minds. It is a huge jump to the adrenaline rush, uncertainty and excitement of startups. How the hell did you make that transition? Well, um, I took myself by surprise, I think, by being a diplomat <laughs> for 32 years. I, I was initially drawn into it because I was uh, completely fascinated by uh, the issue of Hong Kong, the problem of Hong Kong, if you right. like. I was coming out of university in the 70s, and I read a book by an Australian journalist called Richard Hughes called Borrowed Place, Borrowed Time. Yes. Uh, about this extraordinary place that uh, a British ambassador had signed a 99-year lease for in 1898, yep. uh, which turned out to, I mean, it might have looked a smart thing to do at the time, but it turned out to be a bit of an error because <laughs> it was a very, very valuable uh, uh, part of the international community in, in 1997. A lot of people had a lot of stakes there, not just the UK, and nobody knew what was going to happen to it. And China was um, just getting over the Cultural Revolution and still very much a communist country, and one can argue about the extent to which it is still a communist country in some respects. Mm, uh, some but back in 1977, nobody knew uh, what was going to happen. I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. I've just got to be there. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I've just got to be there. And I... I done a little sort of self-analysis more recently when somebody asked me to make a speech about myself, which I hadn't done for, um, well, I hadn't ever done before. So I started to think about what made, my, what made me tick. Um, I'd never been so self-indulgent before. And I realized that um, if there is a theme, it's just a, a fascination with change. Right. Uh, so that's what got me into the foreign service in the first place. And it kept me there because, well, the Hong Kong issue took a, a very long time. Mm. I spent some time at the United Nations, which changed hugely when the Soviet Union collapsed, and suddenly we were talking with the Russians, actually, for a while they're solving problems with them as opposed to creating problems with them. Mm. Um, and then Northern Ireland, again, you know, when that started to change, I was very drawn to that. And I think uh, at the 32-year point, I looked back and I thought, well, I, I was never supposed to be doing that this long. I was just initially driven by my own curiosity. And I wanted, frankly, to have a second life. I personally believe that everybody should have more than one life. I think yeah. it's a pretty raw deal to have just one. And I thought after 32 years in one career, I should really do another one. And um, business was the obvious thing for me. 
uh, I think when when I was in Hong Kong. I mean, you know, what what was Hong Kong? Crucially, it was an international business center. It was a place that made business happen. Still uh, does. So, <laughs> talking yeah, talking about um, you know negotiating the future of Hong Kong. It was really how do you preserve um, a place within uh, Chinese sovereignty, which was going to have to happen after 1997, how do you preserve the circumstances in which business can still operate? So mm. I had a lot to do with business people over the years, and as Consul General in Los Angeles, uh, the, the largest part of that job by far was promoting the business connections between the UK and the US. So I found myself very comfortable in, uh, with, those, uh, with the folks I was dealing with and I- interested in in their in their world, so it didn't feel like the uh, great cultural shift, or even really the great career shift that it might appear from the outside. Mm. Well, you certainly did a fantastic job with Hong Kong. I I go there regularly. In fact, I'm going there in a couple of days again. Um, I'm working with a company that's um, Hong Kong headquartered, and. Uh, it is just such a vibrant, amazing place. So you guys did did well. Although <laughs> these days, um, Shanghai, they're, they're all vibrant. I don't know what's communist about it. I I, I find it extremely difficult to uh, to see anything communist about the place anymore. Well, I think Marx would be a little bit confused, certainly, but Lenin <laughs> might re- Lenin might recognise a few uh, themes that uh, <laughs> dear to his heart. Yeah, I think you know, there's no doubt that the Communist Party is still very much in control in China, no question about that. And you know, you'll have seen, uh, and your listeners will, have, will be aware of the, uh, the the demonstrations in in Hong sure. Kong last year against the tight political uh, control that they see. China exerting, yeah. and you know it may not, may not reach into every aspect of life there. And I think uh, for most people in Hong Kong, and for businesses in Hong Kong, uh, it certainly feels very different from China. I went there twice last year; still feel very different from mainland China. But um, you know they have very reasonable, very moderate political aspirations, yeah. uh, which the Chinese, in my view, the Chinese government is unnecessarily afraid of. Hong Kong is not a radical place. No, it's uh, not. But, You're right. You know, unless they lighten up a little, it may become more radical. I yeah, although I, I, it's an area of concern, I would say, and it's certainly left over from the negotiations. It was uh, an area where yeah. we did not end up with a completely satisfactory result. No question about that. But in most yeah. in most areas of 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 the uh, negotiations, we were able to get what we needed to have that place continue as a as a place with a distinct identity and a world role. Yeah. I, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't intend to talk about politics really in this interview, but just just on that, I think we're we're a little hypocritical in that um, um, Hong Kong has a few demonstrations on the streets about um, their their government rule. We have um, the Occupy movement shut down New York and six or seven other cities, and that's just a part of functioning democracy. Um, I sort of. <laughs> um, and the other thing I think, and people, business people that I talk to, in um, in China you can do business and you know what the rules are. Over here, um, you know, talk about dysfunctional bloody governments. Christ, um, you know, we don't quite know what the rules are. Anyway, so in two thousand and seven, you started Brit Week. That's B R I T for Britain and Week. Um, just what is Brit Week? 
Yes, so I was was in the middle of my term as British Consul General, and I have a friendship with a man called Nigel Lithgow, whom Mm -hmm. most of your listeners will, will know of. Yes. Um, he, he at the time was well into his long stint um, producing American Idol, uh, yep. and he'd also started So You Think You Can Dance. Um, and we were talking about the extraordinary range uh, of British creative collaborations, if I can put it that way, with, with Los Angeles, uh, not just in the field of pop music and, and television and film, obviously, which everybody knew about, but everything else, um, you know, you look at fine arts, you look at uh, street art, you look at uh, business um, collaborations of all kinds, especially in the creative field. And creative, of course, doesn't just mean entertainment. I mean, it means uh, yep. just about every, every field of business these days, technological, scientific advances and, and so on. And the Brits have a pretty strong footprint in Los Angeles. And we decided that... Um, uh, separately from you know the other British organizations that exist here, there was a niche just to celebrate that range of creative connection. Right. It's, a, it's a creative bond between Brits and Americans that is particularly successful here in L.A., and I think ever, you know, has been ever since um, Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel arrived yeah. here in 1912. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a yeah. constant theme. So we started it um, as a small uh, pilot program lasting just one week, uh, hence the name, in 2007. And it was a great success. People liked it. Um, So we responded to the demand, and we went big in 2008. And ever since then, it's been two weeks every spring, starting uh, round about April. Well, this year it starts April the 21st. It's usually round about that time. And it lasts for, for two weeks, and we have um, 35 to 40 uh, events in L.A. And we've spread a little bit beyond L.A. since then. We've, we have a program in San Francisco. We have a program in Miami, which is now three years old, and also in Orlando. But um, L.A. is still ground zero. And yeah, I like yeah. to say it's as much about L.A. as it is about Britain, because uh, we really celebrate all the cool stuff that goes on in this great city that we live in. Um, it's a fantastic city. I think city. for many people elsewhere, LA is all about the movie business, but there's and, and, and there's certainly a lot of that. But there's a lot of uh, just about everything else as well, and we we reach into all of it. What I think is fantastic about Los Angeles at the moment is it's now the the third. Um, innovation capital of the world after Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv and the number of um, startups in Los Angeles is now actually exceeding anywhere else in the world and you're right it's it's people from everywhere I talk to people um, almost every day from either the UK or Australia or South Africa or somewhere that come to Los Angeles because it's a great incubation city there's a lot of money from um, from venture capital here, and it's a collaborative place. Um, you know, coming from Britain's a bit like coming from Australia. I've been here 27 years, and when I go back to Australia, I'm horrified that um, it's f- by comparison with here, it's it's negative. You know, people always finding reasons why you can't do things. Um, it's impossible to get venture capital money, and um, it, people don't collaborate over here everybody wants to help everyone um, you know if you're stuck there's a lot of people that will come to your aid um, and, and 
and I think that's why you get so many Brits and so many Aussies and so many Canadians all come down to LA because it is a great yeah, there's place. There's great openness to ideas here. I think it Fantastic. is, you know, for us, and I, I, I recognize what you say about Australia also. I think there is a great similarity. It's a question of uh, our talent coming here and meeting the opportunity that is here. That's and also, right. you know, mixing with the great American talent because. Um, uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, all American talent <laughs> comes from elsewhere. Um, there's plenty of uh, Angelino talent, but you, you also notice that people come from all over the United States uh, to LA uh, to pursue dreams. And some, you know, some of these dreams are pure hallucination, but some of them actually turn into, you know, real ideas and real businesses. And I think, I mean, you you, you put LA in a company of. of San Francisco or Silicon Valley and, and, and Tel Aviv in terms of, I think, specifically technological innovation. But you can look at innovation of all kinds. You look at just ideas generally, ideas about lifestyle, about media. I mean, L.A. is one of the great cities of the world in that respect. It influences the rest of the world, I would say, as much as London and New York do. Yeah, I think and so. And it's not too. often seen in that way. It is seen, I think, by people who... I haven't spent much time here or don't spend much time thinking about it as purely about Hollywood. Hollywood is extremely yeah. important, but it is not everything about this city. I think there's a, it, it's the most diverse economy, I believe I'm right in saying, in the entire United, United States of all the metro areas. It's got more different uh, sectors of the economy thriving here, you know, whether it's defense and, and aerospace or yeah. medical or, or whatever. It's, it's a very varied uh, city and when you put all these people together, I mean, great ideas, in my experience, come when you put people from different disciplines uh, together. Absolutely, uh, cross pollinate ideas. Cross pollination, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what are the elements of um, of Brit Week? So, do you have um, do you salute all types of different? Uh, industries, for example, British fashion, um, movies, um, technology. What what um, range of disciplines do you salute? Yes, we're, we're pretty omnivorous. Uh, we we have a film and television summit, which is an in, uh, for film and television industry people, where right. uh, they get together and uh, listen to um, high level panelists talking about. Uh, where the industry is going, new developments, new challenges, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have design um, events of various kinds, whether it's exhibits or uh, we have a design icon award, uh, which we give to a prominent designer every year. What and sort of designer? Yeah, the fashion designer, are we talking? You know, different forms of de- design. Oh, okay. uh, Ian, okay. Ian Callum, the uh, yep. design director of, of Jaguar, uh, and formerly uh, at Aston Martin, has mm. been a recipient. Uh, oh, okay. Tracy, the hat designer, has been a recipient. This year, okay. it's Thomas Heatherwick, who's a, a well-known um, architect. And, uh, All right. Okay, that's, British that's great. Designer. That's so, diverse. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, one of our key events um, is our Business Innovation Awards um, competition, now in its uh, sixth year. And we're just about to announce the finalists for that. Okay. Um, this is a competition that's open to any company that has a, uh, an operation of some kind in both the UK and California. So it's a pretty broad 
um, spectrum. Sure. Uh, the awards are given for there are four there are four awards given as part of the competition. One is for design, one for technology, one for business services, and one for social impact. Okay. And we also give um, uh, awards of recognition to uh, people that we want to recognize. And this year we have both Lucian Grange, the head of Universal Group, mm-hmm. uh, one of the most yep. successful expatriate Brits in, 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 uh, in Los Angeles, uh, who's really been p- part of an amazing transformation in the music industry. And we also have Will I Am. Uh, oh, okay. Who's, um, Yep. Spends a lot of time in the UK, as I'm sure you know, with the yes. voice. And uh, um, very interesting example of how uh, entertainers are getting into technology and fashion. Um, and I think exactly that kind of cross-pollination thing that we want to celebrate. So that competition ran from the beginning of the year until early March, and we've collected the, the applications, uh, and we have... Um, We've distilled it down to 12 finalists for the four prizes. Uh, they're going to be announced in a press release in the next couple of days. And um, we have a very fine um, awards dinner at the Four Seasons on April 23rd. There are still tickets available for that. Uh, and it's, it's, a good, it, it's a good competition. It's something that has become uh, very highly sought after. Um, we get many more nominations in year six than we had in year one. Sure. Uh, we've got a pretty stellar group of uh, alums. And it's a way, you know, the judges include Ian Callum, whom I mentioned yep. earlier, yep. Um, Andy Bird, who's the chairman of um, Disney International, and uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who's the great creativity I l- guru. He your, is incredible. Yeah. yeah. He's amazing. Um, Yes, and uh, yes, it, it, it's, it's a good group of judges, and people want to be in the room with those folks. They want their companies to be known about by, by people like that, and the people who come to the dinner um, very often end up doing business with some of these uh, finalists, whether they win the prize or not. In fact, some people, I think, have, have uh, uh, benefited more by not quite winning than right. by actually taking an award away. But it's a, it's a good way to um, not just celebrate, but actually promote that uh, very innovative business relationship between the UK and, and, uh, and California. It's very interesting. You know, uh, the British companies, for the same sort of reasons that you were mentioning earlier in the context of Australia, um, California is one of the first places they want to come to, not just yeah. for the market, but also for just the exposure to talent and ideas here. Um, and California companies very often source uh, creative talent from the UK. Uh, you know, everything from defense and aerospace through to video games. You know, you'll, you'll yep. you usually find um, Brits either employed here or British companies uh, contracted in, in the Evolved UK. somewhere. It seems yeah. to be a sort of natural thing that if you've got a, an innovative company in either California or UK, pretty early on they're going to be thinking about the other place. Do you do you help these um, these local companies um, get funding? Um, I worked a lot with a number of Australian um, innovations a few years ago where we went up to Silicon Valley and we went to various places and, and helped um, these companies get funding. Do you do that sort of thing? 
No, that's well. That's not the function of Brit Week. No, right. um, you know we're we're a non-profit, and right. what we're trying to do is to promote awareness of, of the great importance of this relationship. But um, does it help people to get funding? Yes, I think it does because it gives um, them the exposure. Yeah, it gives it gives exposure, and uh, we we partner for the Business Innovation Awards. We partner with the UK Trade and Investment uh, Agency. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a very useful step. Having an award um, from us, I think, is is helpful. So how how have the awards changed over the years um, since you started in two thousand and seven? I imagine you just dipped your foot in the water at that stage, and uh, it's grown and grown. How, how how has it changed since in those six? Uh, we have many number of well, years, we eight years. With the- yeah, we started the awards actually in um, in 2010. Right. Yeah, so this will be our sixth uh, year of the awards. I think it's just become bigger and more competitive. I mean, I, I, you can imagine when you start uh, year one of an award, um, you know, sure. people haven't heard of it, so they're going to be less likely to, to apply for it. Yes. Um, and, you know, one has to make a decision. Do you just... Do you just recognize people that you think are doing cool things, or do you make it a genuine competition? It's hard work uh, to start a genuine competition. Yes. So, I mean, we ended up with a, with a very decent slate in the first year, but um, most of the people who ended up on the cutting room floor deserve to be on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Um, uh, what we found in the last uh, three years, certainly, is that it's very difficult to sift uh, down to that final group of finalists. Particularly so that, when... You know, it's a high-class problem to have. Yeah, particularly when um, entries would be so diverse, um, it's very hard to compare apples with oranges, and even if it's an excellent apple and an excellent orange, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And we've had a debate about do we need more awards, you know, for, for more categories, hmm. uh, or, or do we need fewer awards, or, or sort of do we need not to have categories, I should say, because, um, you know, a lot of people would think immediately that, oh, this is, uh, this is for technology, so, um, you know, it's, you, you end up with a bunch of um, companies all in the digital space competing with each other, and, um, you know, it becomes, um, I think, less interesting for everybody if if, um, if if there's a look of um, too much sort of sameness about it, um, so we definitely we definitely wanted to send a message that you know design pure and simple was also uh, something that we were looking for. Mm-hmm. So we we have had fashion designers, we have had furniture designers um, compete and and win. But, yeah, you know, one of the winners of the Design Award last year was actually Cubic Trans- Transportation Systems, who's very much a, a technology yeah. uh, company. But, you know, design is part of technology as well. So we've, we've had a sort of back-and-forth debate about how you draw the lines or whether you draw the lines between different types of innovation. And we've ended up with, um, with these four awards, I think, with the categories drafted loosely enough that there's plenty of room for companies to find uh, a category that suits them. And there's plenty of room for the judges also to say, well, you know, these, these folks may, may appear to be a design company, but actually they're a 
social impact. You know, uh, that, 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 that's how we would like to recognize them. So there has to be a certain fluidity about it. I think that's what we've learned over the years, not to be too prescriptive about what exactly we mean by innovation. Yeah, I can imagine being on the judging panel. I've been on a lot, lot of judging panels, and when you're comparing apples with apples, it's difficult. But when you're comparing apples with oranges and bananas and pears, that would be extremely difficult. And it would be difficult because some fields are seen as sort of sexy. For example, from my perspective, I'd look at um, fashion as being interesting, sexy, you know, it's got that thing about it, where... Um, if I was judging the best-looking chair, I would be much less excited. <laughs> yeah. So it, you know, it would be very difficult. So I, um, I think it, it's a brilliant idea. It's a great idea, and it is fantastic exposure for people. Um, the, is the attraction, do you think, of California for Brits... Um, Build around the fact that there's so much venture capital available here. I was reading the other day there's something like $17 billion of venture capital floating around out there looking for a home uh, in, in California. Um, so is the attraction money or is it, um, you know, I find in Australia a lot of people say, you know, I don't want to go to America, you know, Los Angeles, it's all about Disneyland and fake tits. Um, so... Is um, is the appeal of of California the um, the business environment that's so so vital, and the fact that there's money available here is that the main attraction, or people just like Americans? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which isn't the case in Australia. <laughs> Got me. Again. Coughing that. No, they don't come here just because they like Americans, although um, I think they do. And I think um, Brits certainly have an, an inside track here. They're very fortunate that people tend to like the British. Mm. Um, but um, the availability of money, I think, is important. I have not personally come across very many British companies that are coming here uh, just to look for money. Right. Um, I, that that tends not to be the driver. I think it's. Um, I think they come here for um, strategic partnerships. They come here to get into the market. Uh, they come here very often just to um, you know, take a take a, 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 a an example of a very major British company, uh, Vodafone, which set up uh, uh, a. Um, uh, not an office, it's a research facility in Silicon Valley because they just wanted to be, they wanted to be able to tap into all that was going on in, in Silicon Valley. So I think it is the exchange of ideas that's more yes. important than, um, a, more, a, a more important driver than the money. The money's important, but it's, it's not impossible to get money uh, in the UK and it's not impossible to get money on the East Coast. So it's not... It's not, it's not uh, specifically, the, specifically money. the driver for California, in my experience. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things that I found is that you can go to Starbucks in Palo Alto and learn more in an hour just by sitting around talking to people than you could live that you could than you could learn in Sydney talking to every tech guy on the planet. You know, it's just this. Uh, it's the vibrance and the fact that people do communicate and they do share ideas and they do interpollinate and they do help each other. I think that's the big appeal 
For, yeah, I think, I think it's, the, it's the advantage of having a genuine cluster. Yes. Um, you've got, as you say, the right people milling around together, whether it's Starbucks or, you know, wh- whatever, whatever it is that brings them together. Hmm. Um, and I think this is why, you know, in London they've developed the tech city in, in the east of London, she, yep. um, uh, and, which is another, um, you know, quite successful uh, cluster, new, but definitely heading Very in the successful. right direction. I was yep. with the uh, vice chancellor of... Um, Cambridge University last night, and he was talking about the very effective cluster in Cambridge, which uh, people now tend to call Silicon Fen. Um, yes. but, you know, that, that is a genuinely successful, and I think the most successful cluster in Europe. Uh, in LA, I think we fi- because of our geography here, we find it more of a challenge to create a genuine cluster where people from different companies are all, you know, living cheek by jowl and and easily I think, mixing with each other. Yeah, I think that's, San, Santa Monica probably. To... I think Santa yeah, Monica pretty much earns that mantle now. It's very Santa much Monica's doing that, yes, but but it's full of people who dread coming east of the 405, and there is quite a lot of action, <laughs> um, you know, on the other side of the 405 as well. So yeah, we, right. ha- we just have to work a little bit harder to behave like a cluster, which I think is why um, events like the Brit Week events help to pull people together. Bob, we're just about out of time, but I wanted—I just want to say that I think Brit Week is fantastic. What? When is it this year? It's the twenty April. Twenty first is our official launch. Twenty first of April. Yes, we okay. actually do have one or two events um, just before that, including one I would very much like to mention on Sunday, April nineteenth, uh, which is a coding day for young children, for elementary wow. school kids. We're working Great with idea. LA's Best, the after-school program, and uh, some other local organizations. And this has come off the back of the recent um, decision in the UK to make coding mandatory as part of the educational curriculum for young children. I believe the first Fantastic. country in the world to do so. Well, in the United and, um, it's interesting, in the United it, States, um, the number of high school children that can code is about five or six percent where in china it's about 96 percent um so yeah. it's not hard to see where that's going now the awards dinner at the four seasons april 23rd yes. a great that's place april 23rd third was it april 23rd yes yeah april 23rd um how much is it to go how much is it? Uh, seats are uh, two hundred and fifty dollars. That is very good. So it's and not, you can, yeah, not a lot more than you pay for a decent meal at the Four Seasons at the best of times. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and it's an it's, excellent meal, as well, unlike many awards uh, dinners. Right, and it's a uh, chance. You, please to ask see your uh, listeners to go to britweek.org. Uh, which is our website. They get a lot of information about the thirty-five or so events uh, in LA, and um, that's the way to get tickets and um, uh, anything else you you want to do or know about Brit Week. Okay, well, I'm going to try and make it along to the awards dinner. I'm going to look up my schedule when I get off the air and uh, um, see what my schedule well, you is. You should come as my guest. It would be great to go there and see new innovations and uh, the movers and shakers in um, a wide range of various um, disciplines all competing for some major awards so Brit Week begins in about three weeks time 
and go to britweek.org. B-R-I-T-W-E-E-K. Well, for Americans, B-R-I-T-W-E-E-K dot org. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show after this short message. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network you are listening to the bob pritchard radio show to connect with bob please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com now back to the show Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business show, coming to you from my hometown of Los Angeles. Now, living in LA, uh, which is now close to being the startup capital of the world and running a close third to Silicon Valley in Tel Aviv, I come in contact with a hell of a lot of startups and they all have the same issues. Everybody has the same challenges. So I wanted to speak a little today about a company that I have a strong involvement with that is a true innovative leader. You know, it's not easy to build a truly disruptive company. It's hard. But even with the inspiration, the motivation and the term determination of a great entrepreneur, you still need to address the issues of funding, acquiring the right talent, having a product that truly addresses the market need and developing a sustainable business model. They're all very difficult things to do. So let me tell you about how we address them at CQS and how we address those issues that are faced by startups much better than most. And one of the problems is that most startups simply don't do their homework. Every startup commences with a product and the entrepreneur, William Nebrega, who was absolutely dead poor, looked at the wave of disruptive technologies that were sweeping through industry and determined that insurance was the next big legacy industry to be disrupted. You know, we're talking about a $4.3 trillion a year business that meant that William reasoned that even even if we were only partially successful, the upside potential was absolutely enormous. And William approached me, and as a result of my um, business and marketing experience and probably my winning the International Marketer of the Year in 1999 didn't hurt, so I joined the CQS juggernaut. The first thing to address is the target need. Now, a $4.3 trillion a year industry, it's got a million facets to it. So what should our plan be? What should we focus on first? What segment? Well, William realized that the emerging markets of South America and Asia have a very rapidly growing middle class who will require insurance very very in the very near future. You know, there's only about a 5% penetration of insurance in these markets compared with 85% in developed countries and commissions can be much, much higher in developing countries compared with the developed countries. 
and more importantly in developing countries, smartphones are ubiquitous. So this made the emerging markets the perfect target for the CQS startup business. We determined that Brazil would be first, followed by Argentina, then Colombia, Mexico, and so on, rolling out through Latin America in 2015 and then through Asia in 2016. So the first is the target. We determined the target, determined it very specifically and for very good financial reasons. William identified a Chinese investor, Wu Sui Lian, through his son Ming Wu, and the first $2 million was committed. Of course, as a lot of us know, investors create a whole new set of issues. <laughs> and that's another story, and a big story. And I'm going to leave that till next week's show. But it contains some valuable lessons for all startups. Another very important element of a successful company is having an activist contributing board, a board that you know, holds your, what is it, fingers to the grindstone, that, that challenges you, that pushes you, that brings in ideas, that is innovative, that participates. And uh, that will be another subject that we will address next week. So the funds from Wu Sui Lian enabled us to begin to recruit the most highly talented team possible. So we advertised by putting personal feelers out through contacts, our own personal contacts, and also promoting through LinkedIn. So we were looking for four major positions, one financial and three with strong digital and engineering experience. We were not so focused on strong insurance backgrounds as the whole idea of CQS was to create a new way of doing insurance business. So we didn't want to be... Um, burdened down with the legacy mindset. So how do you get the best people? So we received literally hundreds of applications around the world for each of these positions. So I went about calling every one of the applicants, not just sorting through the thousands of pages of CVs, but actually calling them, talking to them every one of them, and we reduced the field in each of the categories to six or eight candidates. So the next question, how do you compare all these candidates properly, not just taking them off their resumes? So we decided to do something that I've done several times before with great success. We held a think tank, and we invited all of the candidates that have made it to the last, um, to the last cut to participate and debate the best ways to move the company forward. And so you get the best ideas from every participant, not just the ones that you'd hired. So we provided each of the candidates with very detailed briefings and asked them all to come to Sapporo with their very best ideas to compete all of, against all of the other candidates in a very vigorous ideas exchange. It's amazing how in these settings some people stand out from the rest. One guy... Edson Fontanelli, a Mensa member and a ex-Microsoft engineer with an extraordinary vision and an intellect to match. He was the first person chosen. 
Duffy Sardo, a digital expert who'd been involved in a number of startups, was also a standout selection. And with online marketing, one of the critical elements is the customer interface on the internet or the smartphone. You know, and most people forget those little details. Well, Andy Ford is a graphics and technology expert from Atlanta, and along with Daniel Hurey, a highly accomplished administrator, and he had a strong insurance knowledge. Those people became the core CQS team, the absolute best available in the market. And we were able to entice them all to CQS because of William's excellent vision on the future of insurance, which was a challenge for everybody, and because we agreed to pay them what they were worth in the marketplace. Of course, when the company becomes successful, they would also get stock and bonuses. So we attracted an expert team and didn't have to settle for second best by applying artificially low salaries because all that does is stop you from getting the best people. So we now determined our target market. We'd obtained funding and we'd assembled an excellent team. The next thing was the strategy to penetrate the market. We needed to get a license from the government in each country we entered, and this was a lengthy and difficult process. We also realised we had to commence from scratch. We had no database, no product, and it would take a long time to develop these. So we undertook an acquisition and technology development strategy. We would buy, on very favourable terms, major insurance brokers in each market. This would give us a license, a very large database, a customer base, product, very strong revenues and EBITDA, as well as great talent that existed within these brokerage. Six months later, when the four acquisitions made to date close, the company will have a market value in excess of $150 million for a relatively minimal capital investment. Now, simultaneously, we began to develop the technology that will revolutionise the insurance industry. We're partnering with the best in the business, Sitecore, Microsoft, Amazon, and half a dozen other cutting-edge companies. This technology will capture big data, submit it to a series of algorithms which creates packets of information on every individual. This enables us to use predictive analytics and geofencing. So this enables us to deliver the right product at the right price at the right time at the right price price through omni-channels. That's how you make a startup really successful. Next week, we'll have a detailed discussion about the investment experience in CQS. But if you have a few million dollars available for a fantastic investment, contact me at bobpritchard.com and I'll put you on to William Nebrega. Thanks for listening to the Bob Pritchard Absolutely No Bullshit business radio show for entrepreneurs thanks for making us number one and remember it's much easier to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary this is bob pritchard in los angeles and i hope that you have a fantastic week you've been listening to the bob pritchard radio show please join us again next tuesday at 8 p.m eastern time 5 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.